This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzada, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Future of Cybercrime podcast with Kayla, where I speak with cybersecurity professionals, perhaps like yourselves, about the cybercrime underground. Today, I have with me Chris Kirsch, CEO of RunZero, a cyber asset management company. I really don't even think Chris needs an introduction for cybersecurity OGs, but for everyone listening in, he was the co-founder of Metasploit, a project renowned for its vulnerability discovery findings, And he's also a seasoned professional across the cyber landscape. And here's my favorite part about that. In 2017, he earned the black badge for winning the Social Engineering Capture the Flag competition at DEF CON. DEF CON is the world's largest hacker conference. So I'm really excited to have Chris here. Chris, I sincerely thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's start off the conversation with setting the scene for everyone on how you got into cybersecurity, what memorable series of events did you go through uh, throughout your career in life to bring you here? So uh, I, by by training, I I studied political science and international relations and then did a like a kind of MBA in marketing. So I have no business being here. Uh, (laughs) But I've always been interested in in cybersecurity and uh, and that whole field. I don't think I called it that at the time. Uh, but uh, when I was finishing up my studies uh, for political science, I stumbled across this book in the library uh, called Applied Cryptography by Bruce Schneier. It's, it wasn't on my political science reading list, but I thought it was really interesting. And it was also the time when you know PGP encryption was starting to become interesting and so on. And uh, that, that was, one part where I read up on things. And then this was in the UK. And then I moved back to Germany. And uh, one of my childhood friends had uh, started this company. They were spinning out a, a, uh, a software company that was first focused on antivirus and that completely flopped. And then they uh, uh, brought out another product around encryption. And so we actually ended up licensing PGP while some of your readers or listeners might not remember this, but at the time, encryption technology from the US was export controlled. You couldn't export hard encryption from the US. It was uh, basically a, a classified in the same vein as like a war ammunition. So it's really a big deal. But uh, we we licensed the software. Uh, somebody else exported it. It was already like on the internet, you know, it's downloadable and from Sweden and so on. And we we built that there. So that was my first touch point with uh, with security. And we later sold that company to to PGP. Actually, a few years later. Uh, so it's kind of like went full circle. Um, and then uh, I worked for for Encipher for a while. That was a hardware security modules then switched over to Rapid7. And that's where I met HD, um, my current co-founder. And small 
small adjustment to to your introduction. I wasn't a co-founder on Metasploit. I joined after Metasploit had been acquired by Rapid7. And I helped HD on the business side to, you know, grow the, uh, the, the, the revenue for the Metasploit commercial product, which was open, open core, but also to take care of the community. This was a time where Tenable had acquired Nessus and closed sourced it. And so there was a lot of anxiety in the community about what would Rapid7 do with Metasploit. We decided to keep it open source and it's huge kudos to the to the leadership at Rapid7 to, to recognize that and do that. Uh, and it was really interesting managing that brand because number one, fascinating product. Uh, Metasploit, for, for those listeners not familiar with it, it's it's a an open source tool that helps you break into networks. So that's, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of cool stuff in there and a lot of interesting topics to talk about. And to me, it was a little bit like, managing the harley davidson brand right you get a lot of you get your street cred as harley davidson from the biker gangs but you actually make money with the consultants and the accountants riding a bike on the weekends uh, right that's a good way to say. <laughs> uh, but it was a really really fun space to work in and also uh cryptographers are very smart very high concept hackers are a lot more fun over a beer uh, because they have the better stories. So, so that kind of got me hooked. And then I uh, went to, to Veracode, uh, worked on application security uh, for a while. And then uh, when I was uh, ready to leave Veracode and I, uh, I was always in touch with HD, he had built a new product around uh, asset inventory. So cyber asset management, figuring out basically what you have connected to your network. And he was ready to scale that. And so I joined as a co-founder and we've been building the company ever since. So that was about two and a half years ago. This this is interesting. Well, you got into a very contentious space with yes. uh, Metasploit after, uh, not to generalize this, but after picking up Bruce Schneier's book on, on cryptology, which is, you know, I think you have full business being here from from the start and maybe i'm i'm being self-serving because i also came from the similar a similar background political yeah. science as well and i studied poetry so we <laughs> no one has a linear path here yeah absolutely <laughs> none whatsoever uh really fascinating journey especially that point on making the decision to keep metasploit open source um this is a continuous issue in cybersecurity, in the studies of AI as well, uh, generally across the product landscape, where practitioners, despite their intentions and however they may evolve, are married to the brand as it started and to products as they began. So kudos, yeah, to you and to the team for, for holding on to what is brand recognition and to your base. Um, so you made your way all the way into the enterprise space. How about social engineering? I I, <laughs> I, I don't mean to to harp on that. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. That, yeah. How so did that happen? For, for social engineering, essentially, uh, I, I think it was DEF CON 23. I'm not sure what year that was. That was my first DEF CON that I went to. I'd been to Black Hat a few times, RSA, of course. And then before that, I actually started in Germany. Uh, so I was attending more like uh, German and European shows. And so first DEF CON I attended, 
uh, I stumbled on the social engineering village uh, and I'd, uh, I'd read, you know, like all of the books by uh, Kevin Mitnick and all of those things. And I found that topic super interesting, but it never really clicked to me how it works and how well it works until I saw people in the room, actually social engineering people live over the phone. And that got me hooked. And when I came back, I told my husband about it and I wouldn't shut up about it. And then he said, like, you know what, Chris, I think you'd actually be really good at that. And so so I thought, like, hey, you know, like all of these competitions at DEF CON, they're, they're really interesting. For most of them, I don't have the technical chops. Social engineering, I think I might have a, might have a chance of, of uh, participating. And so, yeah, I threw my hat in the ring. Uh, DEF CON 24, I participated. I had a... My target was a, an enterprise security company, and I had a Saturday afternoon slot. So I knew that it would be really hard to reach people in the office. And I, I'd researched people's cell phone numbers, and I was trying to reach them uh, out, out, outside of office hours, uh, and I just couldn't get anybody on the phone. So I got a really good score in the OSINT report, but I got zero points on the calls. And that was that was devastating. And then I thought, all right, you know, now that I've lost my dignity, I can, I can just come back and try it again. And uh, went back the next year. Uh, that year, the topic was not security companies, it was gaming and toy companies. And I had a Fortune 500 toy company as my target. And I found stores that were open on a Saturday afternoon and called in uh, somebody uh, claiming to be from the IT, from the ERP team and saying that, hey, we haven't gotten any bookings data from your, from your POS systems. And I uh, did really well in that, uh, completed all of the flags on the first call, started a second call until time ran out and so on, and actually ended up winning the competition that year. Uh, so that was really fun. And you, you asked about memorable moments uh, in my career. That was definitely one, because uh, previously, I'd always had the feeling that I really enjoyed cybersecurity. I was reading about it even in my spare time, but I never really felt accepted as a marketer in that space, right? Because, you know, the hackers are the, the cool guys and they look down on you a little bit if you have a business function. And that's, you know, that's okay. That's part of the part of the culture. But uh, that to me was kind of like the a boost for my ego, I guess. <laughs> to say like, hey, actually, I, I can do some of this stuff. And it's not, it's it's a, a slightly different discipline from most of the disciplines at DEF CON, but it was really good fun. Going back the second time and succeeding means not only that you've had practice, but you have the characteristics, the traits, the even um, ethos to be liked, trusted, and uh i i suppose uh welcomed by any stranger and and these are <laughs> this is this is pretty pretty significant not a lot of folks i think in the hacker community or even in the business community can go ahead and say that they have those traits to break what is physical security or otherwise to do what is social engineering so let's talk just a bit about what it was you think that made uh, your call so successful? So a, a few things. The first one was I, 
you have to think about the the context that you're doing the social engineering in. Uh, it's it's a competition. You have twenty minutes and you're on on the clock, so you have to be super efficient and uh, you don't have time to build a relationship over time. If I if I did a social engineering attack over time, I would maybe build rapport over several calls, maybe over several days and weeks, right? So that the other person feels they know and trust me, and that's a better basis. For the competition, I had to get somebody on the phone, first and foremost, that was my primary problem the, the first time around. So instead of picking numbers for individuals, I picked numbers for a, a location where they would always pick up. And I've seen people getting shut down by people that uh, on the receiving end that are either trained. So anything in call centers, like uh, technical support, uh, customer service and so on, they're trained on a script, on a process. So they're harder to, um, if they're trained well, it's really hard to break out of that. Also receptionists, their job is to screen callers out and to deflect, right? So I knew I didn't want to have any of those kind of numbers. And then I found uh, two retail stores. So th this, this company doesn't have a lot of retail outlets themselves. They sell through the, the toy channel, like toy, comp uh, like, uh, what do you call them? Toy retailers, I guess. But they did have a, a few brands or like one brand in particular where they had their own retail outlets because their, their resale channel, that's out of scope for the engagement because it's not their company, right? But a, a fully owned subsidiary with a retail outlet is, a, is, is in scope. And most of those uh, retail outlets, when you called the number, led to a central customer service center. That was no good for me. Mm -hmm. But then I think it was through the uh, phone tree of the malls that they were in, for two of the stores, I found two stores that were open in the time zone that I was in at, for my call time and uh, where I got a direct line to the store. And that was pretty hidden. So I had to do a lot of research. So a lot of OSINT and we were allowed to call phone trees and those kind of things ahead of time, provided that we were on mute and we didn't say anything and we didn't elicit any information out ahead of time. But to, to get you know a better better show at the you know, at DEF CON without rigging the game, we were allowed to test out numbers ahead of time and, and, and go through phone trees. So I, I found these two numbers and those were gold because they weren't expecting to get calls from the general public because usually everything <laughs> was getting channeled uh, to, the, uh, to the customer success team, right? And also they were, um, you know, regular store clerks, not trained in process of how to handle somebody on the phone, not trained in security, probably minimum wage, right? Probably high turnover uh, in the organization. And when somebody from headquarters calls and asks for help in a non-threatening way uh, for something that's really helpful for the business, they're probably likely to comply. So that was a much better setup for me than the first year where I called individuals over the cell phone. And, uh, and then I had a script where I started out with small asks and I increased the asks over time. And I tried to chain 
all of the pieces of information that I had to get in a logical order. And so uh, they weren't in this in the sequence that they were, you know, for the in the sequence of the scoring sheet, I had to weave a story out of that. So I started out the call uh, with a, a an artificial time constraint. And that was to lower their their defenses. If you get a call from a telemarketer, your first th thought is like, oh, how long is that person going to keep me on the phone? And so, and that's with a call from any stranger. They're like, is this like, am I, is this going to waste my time? What, what is this thing? And so I, I called up and said like, hi, my name is Mike from central ERP and this in the city. And this in the city was where the headquarter was for this division. So I didn't say I'm from headquarter. I just said I'm from location, right? Because I, I'd researched and that was kind of like the natural lingo of how people refer to the different, refer to the different offices. And then said like, Hey, I, I wonder if you can help me. I've got to pick up my kids in 10 minutes, but, uh, uh, I, I need, uh, some quick help. And so that basically set an artificial time constraint where I was saying, I don't have a lot of time, which means I'm not going to keep you on the phone for a long time. And that kind of lowered the defenses. Then I started out with very, very easy uh, questions that are non-threatening. Hey, can you tell me, like, I haven't seen any bookings data come from your location in the last 45 minutes. Can you tell me, are you open today? Do you have people in the store right now? And are the registers working? Right. And so those kind of things don't raise alarm bells. And then I started to say, like, okay, so... Uh, let's see where the problem is. Can you help me troubleshoot this? And then the other person said, well, I'm not a computer expert. And I said, don't worry, I'll walk you through it. And that's how <laughs> I then, you know, that's how I then uh, had a logical, easy steps to walk them through it. So I said, you know, one of the questions to, to test on the phone was, is Facebook blocked? Do they have like web filters for those kind of platforms? Because you can send phishing emails, malware and so on through social media, maybe with direct messages and so on. Uh, so for a social engineer trying to get into a company, that's a valuable piece of information. So I told them like, hey, first let's check if you have an internet connection. So can you just open Facebook or something for me and see if you can get a connection? I said, yes, I can see Facebook. And I'm like, great. Now let's test this next thing, right? So you, 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 you take them through the process and you, you take your time, you make sure that you're helpful, uh, that you're courteous and so on. Uh, I, I didn't want to come in and go top down with authority where I say like, you know, like you got to help me, otherwise you're going to be in trouble. It's, it's not a great way to open a conversation. It can work, but it's, uh, you know, not, not a great experience for the other side. Oof. There's so much homework behind this to make you confident in your approach that I just need to go to the source the people that I know that are going to potentially be the most vulnerable. And when I get there, it's massaging the conversation enough to make it viable to extract information. It's, you make it sound so easy. Though. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it was quite easy once I got uh, in the booth and had all the prep work done. And because the other side was compliant, uh, but I had to do a lot of prep work. And, and I had, I don't know, five or six different 
uh, attack vectors. So like people who I was calling different backstories, pretexts, those kind of things. And uh, I, I was happy that the, the one that I chose to go after first worked really well and people were like fully compliant. And it even, um, <laughs> they even gave me more than I wanted. In, in one conversation, I said like, oh, you know, like it might be that and that problem. And the other person said like, oh, could this be related to the problem with, we've had with credit cards uh, last month? And oh, I thought no. like, I'm not going there. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, not. yeah, maybe, but let's test out this thing first, right? If I, if I had been a, a malicious caller, I might've dug into that and gotten more information, et cetera. But uh, yeah, um, I, I've, seen, I've seen crazy things in, in these competitions. And remember you have between 500 and 1,000 people in that room listening into that conversation. So when you're running uh, these kind of competitions, you have to be really sensitive and, you know, turn off the, like mute the volume. If the other side is saying anything like phone numbers, names, oh. email addresses. I I've seen uh, last year, uh, now the, the organizers changed and it's a different village, but similar competition. I've seen uh, that uh, last year that the contestants were going after real estate companies. And one of the things that needed to find out is like, how do you access the building? Is it a badge? Is it a key? Is it a pin code and so on? And somebody actually gave the pin code for that location over the phone and we, ha we had to mute it. I was one of the judges. I wasn't on the buzzer, but I, that was like an- uh, Everyone goes a, crazy in the audience. You know, <laughs> I was uh, certainly inhaling sharply in that moment and hoping that we would mute it and we did mute it. Um, yeah, but people, people give up a lot, uh, if they trust you. That, that part on, on, in the cybercrime underground or on the dark web, as others would, would define it depends how you define. There is something called social engineering as a service, and it's not surprising. There's almost anything as a service, both in the public world and in the cybercrime underground. So there it's it is becoming more and more significant uh, over the course of the last few years and i'm wondering what kind of information do you think is incredibly valuable and easy to get that could be sold there uh are you are you talking about uh, osint to do social engineering or or outcomes of social osint yeah Okay, I, I think it really depends on what you're trying to do as an attacker. Uh, because let's say if you're if you're going after private individuals, then think about like, how would you go and attack a person you can, there's a, a ton of information that that can be used. So for example, I've seen phishing campaigns. These are super malicious and I do not condone this, uh, where the attacker takes leaked password information. So there, you know, sometimes random websites get breached. And, uh, in, in some cases, the attackers just, uh, use the password database and dump it online, or they use it themselves. And there are services online where you can look up people's passwords or just download the, the databases and so on. So I've seen phishing campaigns where uh, 
they they send out an email to the target and say like hey we got access to your computer and to your online services and we found like compromising photographs and uh, if you don't pay us so and so many bitcoins we're going to uh, leak that information online and send it to all of we've got your contact list and we're going to send it to all of your contacts in your address book and so on and then they as proof they list the email address and the and the password and and you see that and you're saying like this is my password and if you're not super sophisticated in terms of cybersecurity, you might fall for that right um I, I think that's a very simple example of a password on a site that might not even be relevant being used in a social engineering attack i think um any indication of what services you're using banking any any uh, site can help an attacker attack you so for example even the simple fact that you have a facebook account which is pretty public right they can send you a phishing email saying like hey um xyz like one of your friends which is also public information sent uh, an important app update and tagged you in a photo uh, and you have 25 comments on it right you sent that as an email people click on the link you fake the facebook login page and you capture their username and password right so a lot of information you put out there can be used against you and it's similar in the in the b2b world in the enterprise world where again you need to think about what is the attack vector what is somebody trying to achieve if i'm trying to get into uh the 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 physical systems uh, sorry the the uh, the digital systems right like I'm, I'm trying to hack into the network then having a lot of information about their digital infrastructure might help so I think in the prep call, we talked about one case where I got invited as a, an internal speaker to a Fortune 500 company. And they wanted to do a security awareness training or just like a, you know, an internal webcast on social engineering and, and how you protect against it. And I sat down for 45 minutes to an hour ahead of the call and just searched different sources online for this company to find out information and i and i basically told them the information and how i would use it against them i'm not going to name the company but i'll, I'll give you some examples of, of things that i found right so i found uh and by the way a lot of the information you can find is linkedin both the individual profiles and the job descriptions, because they will often tell you what technologies they work on or what technologies they're looking for people for. And so uh, I saw that uh, they have internal help desk support services. They use FortiGate, FortiGate for, for web filtering, Symantec antivirus, Trend Micro spam filter. Um, I, I found a case study on a different site uh, on uh, a, a pest control company that uses them for as a reference, right? Um, I found people that are managing the the Tivoli identity management and so on. I, uh, you know, found internal uh, names for for the intranet, right? All of that information you can use to get into the into the company. So I was actually on this call, and this made the counterpart a little bit. A little bit uncomfortable because I didn't quite know what was coming. <laughs> uh, 
uh, and I and I said like, hey, let's do a role play where I'll call you up. And uh, so I called in as you know, like Mike from Aruba Networks customer success team. And hey, we've got some problem with the firmware of the Aruba CX series that you purchased from us. I knew that they were using this from my research, right? Uh, it should only take a couple of minutes to see if you're affected. You know, we like, and then I did some techno babble that they didn't need to understand, but just to uh, kind of say, hey, can you help me? They say like, and I, then I asked like, do you have this hardware model or this hardware model? And gave them like a, a model number. And they said like, uh, I don't have any idea. And I said, oh, don't worry. Like I, we have this quick diagnostics tool. If you could just run that on your computer uh, and uh, then I can say if you're affected or not. And so I sent them a file, they double clicked. I mean, this was all a role play. So they didn't, I didn't send a file and they didn't click. But it was like an example of how you can use information found online to become credible over the phone and and get in. Uh, that's to get into the into the uh, digital systems. But there is also other attack vectors. Like even without touching the the digital systems, I can do something like uh, trying to compromise the uh, accounts. Uh, so like getting getting uh, funds sent to my account. So I saw that they're using Symantec as a an antivirus, I guess it was. And I knew that Symantec had just been bought by Broadcom, right? If, like a year before. So I looked up who's doing uh, accounts payable at the company and then said like, you know, I could phone this person and say like, hi, I'm with Symantec. Um, we've been emailing you for the past 11 months uh, to change your bank, like our bank details over, like after our, after we got acquired by Broadcom, our bank details changed. And like, this is like last, you know, this is the last chance for you to update that because otherwise you're gonna default on your, on your payment next time. And we're gonna have to shut down the service. So you create some urgency, you, you take information that you know from their infrastructure, from the industry and so on, and you weave that into a story to convince somebody, right? And uh, so when you think about like what actually can get you exposed online and what is dangerous, it really depends on what attack vector you're expecting or trying to protect against. This is rough because the human is always the weakest element. So, yeah, and it's it's really hard to, you know, quite honestly, it's really hard to protect against it. Uh, I think, you know, I was a, a judge last year in the in the social engineering competition, and people had to write up reports on the OSINT and they had to give recommendations on on what companies should do about it. And most people said like, oh, you know, you should scrub this information from the internet and you should train people on not posting this online and so on. And I think that's a good start, but it doesn't really solve the problem because you'll never be able to scrub it fully. Um, you don't have control over people's LinkedIn profiles, uh, third party sites like Glassdoor, when people post something on there, you don't even know who posted it, you can't take it down. And so I think you need to especially for anything that is a, a structured process, like uh, the support team, the customer success team, uh, vendor management, you know, those kind of things. Work with them to 
create what I think of as OSINT resistant processes. So OSINT is, we kind of use that term without explaining it. I, I know you're probably way better than me at OSINT because I, I know some of your background, but OSINT is open source intelligence. So it basically means open source doesn't mean open source software. It means getting information from open sources, anything that's on the internet, in the newspaper, on the radio, stuff that's available to everybody and making that usable, like deriving intelligence from that. And so when you're defining a process, make sure that the things you use to identify a caller, for example, or somebody who's sending in an email, make sure that those details aren't findable online. So I'll give you one example. I gave a, uh, a training once for a software company. And they, I, I asked them like, how do you identify people that are calling in? And they say, well, you know, like we, we have like named people who are allowed to call in and so on. And I gave them a few examples and I said, okay, so if I'm calling in and I'm saying, my name is X, would you let me in? You know, like, would you, would you continue the call? If I said, you know, like, and, the, and then some people said yes, some people said no. And then I upped the ante and I said, all right, if I'm calling in and I say, my name is X and I'm working on this application and it didn't quite go through uh, through your system and I need some help, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Would you continue the call? And they said, well, yeah, the, the right person. They knew what the application's called and they knew to call us and so on. And then I showed them all the online sources, like one online source that, you know, this customer, this company was a customer of that company. Uh, then people listing like who, what vendors they were working with, people listing what applications they were working on internally and so on. And you chain all of that together and you can weave together a very, very convincing story. So one way to OSINT proof that process would be to say, all right, I thank you for calling. I see you're one of the named contacts. I'm going to send you an email with a randomly generated number. Can you read that number back to me? Or log into the portal and tell me like, what's the, what's the support code of the day kind of thing, right? For that customer. And, and that's one way of how you can uh, go after that. Mm, em embedded multi-factor into... Uh, yeah, essentially, right? Yeah. 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 Thank you for being so gracious about the OSINT comment, by the way. Um, I'd have to say one of my favorite practices in cybersecurity, how I began, was just trying to get at the vulnerabilities of people because... It was just something I studied in graduate school as well in security policies. Uh, human vulnerabilities exist everywhere, even in warfare. So it was the idea was how pervasive can this be? And uh, these days, I'm entirely astounded by what we can do with generative AI, mm. especially when it comes to vishing. Um, and honestly, I have been playing around with a lot of voice spoofing. Uh, in, in fact, even how we can do biometric spoofing for those devices that require facial recognition and how you can meet device to device on it. And uh, either I have too much time on my hands or I'm just trying to find out how, <laughs> uh, how best to combat it and get my thoughts together. But do you have any thoughts on, on this? how the world of social engineering may change and what even the composite of the cybercrime underground might look like. Yeah, I, I actually have the biggest concerns uh, about nation state influence campaigns, 
So if you think about the, was it 2016 election, right? Uh, 2016 and 2020 of how other nations, especially Russia, tried to influence US elections and so on, um, kind of, it's, it's really interesting. Russia does this really well, uh, understanding from social media profiles and from analytics, uh, how people are leaning politically and then driving in a wedge between the different factions in our population to, to split them even more, right? And a lot of that, I think, was still handcrafted. If you then apply generative AI for, for text so that you can automatically post uh, different comments on social media at, at, at scale, if you uh, generate uh, also deep fake visuals that really incent one party or the other party, I think for the next election, we probably have quite a thing coming that we haven't seen before. I think that's what worries me the, the most because these nation states are very sophisticated. They know how to apply technology. Um, Russia is very, very research-based, very methodical in these kind of uh, campaigns. And I think if they uh, lean in on that, it's going to be really hard to counteract that. Oh, yeah. The evolved propaganda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's too good. Uh, a really perfect idea of asymmetric warfare. Um, what about enterprise defenders? Uh, you, you gave a very good idea of, of what we can do to embed security into processes, but uh, what can enterprise defenders do to better their practices, considering what you've just said? Yeah. So I, I don't know about AI. I haven't seen AI. I, I don't work on the an incident response. I uh, worked on an incident response product years ago, but uh, just in terms of what we're seeing as a company, most of the social engineering based attacks that we're getting are text based uh, today and they're pretty basic like their goal is to get somebody in the company basically what happens is somebody joins the company or there's an existing person in the company they i assume see that on linkedin that somebody just joined the company they through osint research their personal private cell phone number and then send a text message, usually pretending to be either from me or my co-founder, because we're supposedly people of authority, right? So they're trying to uh, play the authority card and saying like, hey, can you help me with something real quick? And then they're trying to get them to buy gift cards and send the pictures over, over text. And those things are pervasive, right? Uh, and what we do to safeguard against that is Every time somebody gets one of those, we encourage them to post a screenshot on the company channel and they get, uh, we use a system called Bonusly, which is basically you can give like little rewards to your colleagues. And so I typically give like five bucks to everybody who's catching one of those, right? And so it's, it almost becomes a game, but it's not a simulated game. Like a lot of uh, phishing emails, like companies simulate them but they never share the real ones. And I actually think there is some, something powerful there where you, where you share the real attempts of how somebody tried to get in because it, it makes it a lot more, yeah, a lot more real for people. 
and they, they can see it and they can understand it. It's not just a drill. And uh, then also the positive reinforcement, right? That we give rewards for catching it. I think that's really important because oftentimes they're sending the, the fake phishing emails for testing and then punishing people for uh, clicking on the link. Uh, and punishing can simply be by, oh, you have to take another training or you have to have a conversation with your manager or whatever. Uh, so I think the positive reinforcement is important. Um, and I am qu quite frankly, I'm happy that we're not getting more sophisticated attacks um, because, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I think our folks are pretty well trained uh, also through standard security awareness trainings and so on, but there's always a risk with social engineering. You never have, never have a hundred percent protection. Uh, and another thing I saw recently, and this was a, a new one was. Uh, somebody in our finance department getting an email that looked like it was forwarded to the other person and then from there to the finance person. Um, so basically, it, it looked like a conversation between me and somebody who was trying to get sponsorship for a, I think it was like a law enforcement or first responder event or something like that. And it said like, yes, uh, we'd like to sponsor this. Please contact XYZ at my company for the payment. And then they forwarded that to finance. And I, I'd never seen this email, right? So it was completely fabricated. And our finance person like checked in with me and said like, hey, this doesn't quite smell right. It's, was that you? And I'm like, uh -uh, no, that wasn't, right? So it's, no. it's not always, a lot of these attacks don't go after the digital systems. A lot of them go after uh, cashing in through um you know wires like paying invoices changing vendor payment details changing payroll details right make sure that your employees uh, like we have a process where if if uh, uh we get an alert that an employee changed their bank account details we reach out to them through an internal channel that is a known trusted channel and we ask them hey was that you can you confirm that because we don't want you know, their account getting hacked, like if they use a weak password or something like that, or, you know, um, that it was actually them who changed over the bank details. Mm. That's, that's pretty ingenious. Mm. Uh, the forwarding email. That's, yeah, that's a that good was really well done. That was yeah, really well that's, done. that's different. Uh, yeah. If they've gotten the tones for purple and, mm -hmm. and red, right as well, or blue, when mm -hmm. you have the forward yeah. email, that's pretty good. Uh, well, I'm glad that there's positive incentivization over deterrent in your employee awareness program. That's definitely a big takeaway for a lot of enterprise defenders to hear. Um, so many still go with a three strikes you're out for folks that fall for for uh, social engineering attacks, but it's just that's just useless. I mean, everyone is vulnerable. It depends on the day and the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you're you're doing great work over there, and. Uh, another addition I wanted to make is you said something really interesting that social engineering, um, I'm going to paraphrase it a bit, but that it's it's going directly after the people. So the idea is for the motive. What is the motive? And the motive can either be the long game or the quick win, right? And the quick win is how quickly can I get money from them? Because that's uh, most are financially motivated, depending on the kind of actor. And then the long game is... Uh, well, to add to the quick win, or I can bulk sell this data. Everything mm -hmm. that they've told me, I can package it and sell it uh, in the cybercrime underground. But then the long game is we have a bone to pick with this company. And 
either we do or don't, but we need their money. And all of this information is going to be useful at some point in time. So social engineering then gives that angle. Hmm. Uh, for defense in depth, and I think it applies to this as well. What are some of your recommendations for organizations? I think from not only the user awareness angle, but also the asset management landscape, what would be some of your recommendations? So I think you, you, you need to get the basics done first before you uh, go in deeper. So for example, um, for any of the phishing attempts trying to take over accounts, multi-factor authentication is like one of the best ways to stop that, right? Because if they don't have the second factor, they can't get into the account. Um, similarly, and this is a shameless plug for, for what I do for work, um, if you don't know what you have on your network, and especially the, the unmanaged devices, you, you know, <laughs> I was, I was uh, uh, interviewing Chris Nickerson at, at RSA, and he's a, you know, old school pen tester and so on. And, uh, and I asked him, so like, what, what's your take on asset inventory? And he says, well, Karate Kid rule number one, man can't see, man can't fight. You know, if you don't, <laughs> if, you, if, if, uh, if you can't see what you have on your network, you can't defend. Right. And uh, quote, to quote a different uh, talk, I, I saw a, a talk from somebody at the NSA and they don't give a lot of talks. So it's rare that you actually see that in the in the public. And it's up on YouTube where he said, you know, if if the attacker knows your network better than you do, you have a problem. Right. And so asset inventory to me is foundational. You need to know what's there. And then you can build all of your security program on top of that, right? That's more for, for enterprises than for individuals. I think for individuals, the, the, the basic hygiene is make sure that if your browser says update in the top right corner, that you close it and reopen it. If your computer says, please reboot to, reboot to apply the latest update, make sure you do that. Those kind of things seem trivial, but they matter a ton. That and the multi-factor comment, especially the multi-factor comment. I have a ton of friends right now who are going over, who are going through account takeovers on Instagram. When I say a ton, I mean it, uh, at least 10 plus in the past two months. So account takeover is a big issue and it's because they didn't have multi-factor. So it was easy to just get into their account, go ahead and change the phone number attached to it, the mm -hmm. email attached to it, yeah. route the new password through, change the password and then compromise the account to go ahead and just go ahead and annoy everybody yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take I, I had a very fun moment uh once uh, this was with with uh one contestant also at the social engineering thing and he he has a big following i think he has like over a million people on instagram or something like that it's some, something ridiculous and uh, i went for lunch with him uh after he, he was up on stage and uh I did a really corny card trick with him where I had him, you know, pick a card, sign a card, put it back in the deck and then, you know, uh, draw the card again. And it was the same card, only that it was no longer his signature. It was his password and it was his Instagram password. And he almost freaked out. I mean, he did freak out, <laughs> but it was all I'd done was I'd taken his email address. I went onto a website where you can look up passwords for email addresses. I wrote that down. I learned a stupid cheap card trick and I did it. And you know, he didn't have 
two-factor authentication on that Instagram account. And I told him like, okay, change the password and turn on 2FA. <laughs> I, by the way, I never logged onto that Instagram account because that would be violating US yeah. law. Also, it wouldn't be ethical. Uh, but uh, I, I had a hunch that, you know, like, he, he might be reusing password. It's, it's, it was a, a fun thing to do just to mess with him. Oh, yeah. Uh, no matter your position in the world, if you're not security minded, it's not working out that well. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's for sure. Yeah. And, and hierarchy means nothing to security minded. Yeah. Uh, so that these are some good anecdotes to share. I don't mean to laugh at the expense of this individual. I just laugh at the, I think, how incredible this world is in such a way that information is pervasive everywhere and dependent on the motive you can either exploit it or use it for good. And I'm so glad that we got to talk about just how these things happen, uh, social engineering particularly, and from someone who has practiced it like yourself continues to, and has an award to show for it. I mean, that's not easy. I, I sit there throughout the sessions and I wait, I wait at the CTF for just someone to pick up the phone, just that much. And then yeah. once that's it, I'm just like, let's go. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so. It is, um, it is really fun. So uh, I, I think we're getting close to accepting yes. submissions for the next round. So look up the social engineering community online uh, and, uh, and throw your hat in the ring if you're interested. Oh, I, I'd be happy to. And all listeners continue to, no matter where you are. I mean, Chris, you came into this field in a way that's not uh, the typical, I was obsessed with computers since I was a kid way. I think that's wonderful, though the diversity across cybersecurity is necessary from not only the way of living and being, but also just your interests. That's what's going to drive anything in the world to be creative, innovative, and evolved. So you got into it differently. I did too. And for all listeners, uh, just as Chris said, I'll throw in the link uh, in the show notes throw in your hat into the ring, Chris, I believe you'll be mentoring. Uh, so you'll get to see Chris again. And <laughs> for those that don't, Chris, I'll, I'll ask before we end our conversation, where is the best place to find you to keep up with you? Not from a social engineering perspective, mm -hmm. but from an updates and professional perspective. <laughs> sure. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Chris uh, Kirsch, uh, K-I-R-S-C-H. Um, I'm easy to find there. If you want to connect with me there, I have a lot of people trying to sell me stuff. Just connect and put in the notes like, hey, heard you on this podcast, and then I'll accept and we can start a conversation. Uh, also on Twitter, uh, Chris underscore Kirsch. On Mastodon, Chris underscore Kirsch at infosec.exchange. And if you want to check out the company, that's runzero.com. We also have a free version. If you want to try it out at home or at, at your company, our main business is, is, is enterprises, but uh, we, we give it away for personal use. Awesome. Chris, thanks for joining me today. It was truly a wonderful conversation. And I'll look forward to keeping in touch with you. I'll put the notes into the show notes for everyone so you can keep up with Chris. That's all the time we have today, though, unfortunately. I look forward to seeing you all here next time. And as always, stay engaged with us. We love to hear from you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kellogg. For the latest episodes, please visit k 
ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.